Hello, and welcome back to Talking Talmud. I'm one of your hosts, Jordana Osman, here with my friend, Chavruta Ann Gordon. Our daf today, Masachad Yavamot, daf Kuf Yudbet, page 112. Well, just want to remind everybody that our CM is in about two weeks. Uh, we already have released our uh, sign-up sheet. We hope people will register, share some Torah. Uh, we will have a special guest uh, to conclude our study of Yavamos. It's hard to believe that we're there. And we look forward uh, to seeing all of you there. Um, I miss you, everybody. Don't you miss everybody? I feel like, I like everybody. at the end, we saw everybody so often, right? And so now frequently, we don't see anybody. I agree with you. I can't wait to see everybody's faces. Um, also, uh, we're going to finish a paracup today. Uh, but before we finish the paracup, I just want to, um, you know, f- uh, well, before we start a parak, I'm going to finish up the parak. So one of the things that the Mishnah talked about is the last Mishnah of the parak was Hanoder Hanaab. Let's say a woman takes a vow during her husband's lifetime that she can get, that she was going to get no benefit from her yavam, then he basically has to do chalitza with her if she enters into a yibum type of situation. And so now they quote an interesting b'risa from Masach Nadarim, which when we get to Nadarim, we'll learn again. Tznan Hatam, it taught there, Barishonah Yomri, right? At first they said, Shalosh Nashim there are three categories of women who are divorced from their husbands, basically against their will, but they still get their, their ketubah. They still get the money from their ketubah. How merits may not laugh, a woman who says, I am defiled to you. So in other words, let's say there's a, and she tells her husband that she was raped. She, he's basically obligated to divorce her because she's forbidden to him. Again, totally understand. This does not seem fair. This is not, would not sit well with any of our modern sensibilities, but because she became forbidden to him due to circumstances that are completely beyond her control, she still would get her ketubah. Let's say a woman says, heaven is between me and you, meaning that there are no witnesses, right? In other words, only Shamayim could testify to this, but what she's basically saying is, is that the husband was not capable of having a normal sexual relationship with her, and again, since this wasn't her fault, we force a divorce, but she still would get her ketubah. And then finally, nitulani min yehudim. And this is a very interesting one, which the explanation, the way the Mepharshim say is that a woman says, I basically remove myself from the Jews, meaning she will not have any sexual relationship with another Jew. And it may be because maybe something was difficult with her to have a sexual relationship. Maybe sex was painful, uncomfortable, whatever. She didn't want to have a sexual relationship. So again, uh, you know, she, uh, you know, we force a divorce, and but she still would collect her ketubah. But then the Chazal basically retracted this. Why? Because they what they were worried is, is that a woman could basically sort of use these as fake excuses if they wanted to get out of a marriage, right? They could make, use any of these three lines and then they could basically leave their her husband, marry somebody else, and still get a ketubah. So then they said, Ella, how merits may not laugh. So rather, what does she have to say? She has to say, right, I am defiled to you. Okay. She actually has to bring proof of it. Right? If she says, heaven is between me and you, the court has to deal with it. Uh, by way of a request. In other words, the husband is not forced to actually give his wife uh, a divorce. It's a request she can make of the court, but they don't force it. 
Mitulani mina yudim. If she says this last one, I'm withdrawn from the Jews, right? Yafer chalko, the husband nullifies sort of his part in the vow. In other words, we know that when somebody takes a vow, her husband's actually allowed to nullify it and say the vow doesn't count. And so he could nullify that part and say, okay, the part of you saying you don't want a sexual relationship with me as a Jewish person, that wouldn't be uh, true. Umisham shabto, and she can have relations with him. But she would not be allowed to have relations with any other Jews. This would be is that if she got divorced, okay, uh, she would not be allowed to marry any other Jewish person. Mar basically wants to ask Okay, so let's say she says right? She says I'm withdrawn from the Jews. Then let's say that woman, okay, the husband nullifies it. She stays married to him. They he dies and he dies childless. Is she allowed to do Yibum now with that brother? Because she already said she's not going to have a sexual relationship with any other Jew. Um, so the question is, when she took that vow, did, it, did she have in mind that her husband was going to die and she maybe would have Yibum or not? In other words, part of what they're exploring here is, is when you take a vow, do you take into account extraordinary circumstances that you wouldn't normally think of. And so the question is, did she consider that maybe she would become a Yavama at some point? Or did she never, or really was just directed at any they have later if her husband got divorced? Rav Amar, Yavame no Kaba'al. So Rav says, Yavam is not like a husband, right? Ushmul Amar, Yavam Haregu Kaba'al. But Shmuel says, no, Yavam is like a husband. So what would the difference of this be? So for Rav, right, it's basically saying that if he says that Rav Ram is like not like a husband, then that would mean she didn't intend that this nedar should have anything to do with, with a Yavam, and therefore she could enter into a Yibam relationship. Shmuel says, no, Yavam is basically a husband, and therefore that nedar would apply to it. And then Amar Abaye says, Kavate de Rav Mistabra, right? We rule according to Rav. And so then he quotes a Brisa, uh, that that you know uh, that supports uh, that supports that um, that supports that opinion. Um, so I just think it's a very very. The Gemara goes on to to talk about this. Uh, well, I guess I'll just finish up to the bread and the parak, right? So they have this Mishnah here. The Tanan Anoderet Hana Mi Biyama Bechayi Bala Kofino Toshia Float Vim Ita Dimaska Adate Mevakshimi Bailei. Right. So what we say is if a woman vows during her husband's lifetime that she'll get no benefit from her Yavam, the court forces her to uh, to perform Chalitza. And if it's that case that would enter her mind that her husband would die and she would have to do Yibum, right, then the Mishnah should have said it was a Mibakshim case, right, that we would you couldn't force, but we would sort of say, you know, that that they should try to encourage Chalitza. So the Gemara says, what are we dealing here with? So we have to be dealing with a woman who has children with her husband. She takes a vow. So obviously it wouldn't even enter her mind that there ever would be a yibum or anything like that. So what they ultimately answer is this, this case has to be a case of a woman with children. She makes this vow, but she must have had children. So she knew she never was going to have to do yibum. But if she has no children, my right? 
What's Allah? Do we ask him to do Khalitsa but not force him? Adatani, right? So right, instead of teaching, right? Sort of this im uh, right? Instead of teaching sort of this far flung case that she intended to do this to avoid Yibam in case of her husband's death by making this type of vow. So even if, you know, even if she, uh, so the court sort of asked him to do chalitza with her, um, right? So the Mishnah, you know, distinguishes and teaches uh, something dis- it within the halach itself. Right? In a case where she doesn't have children, Okay, this is what we're talking about. If she does have children, the court is just going to be mevakshim. The court is just going to ask. Rather, right, learn, there's no difference between whether she has children or doesn't have children, ultimately. In the end, the court would force him, even in accordance with the opinion of Rav. Because in other words, the assumption, there's no assumption that a woman would make this vow to plan to sort of like avoid Yibun. And so we follow the halacha of Rav. So I, I think a very, very interesting Mishnah. I think it's interesting that the Gemara entertains the possibility that a woman could try to plot her way out of a marriage. That's really what the Gemara Nadarim is, the Mishnah Nadarim is talking about, and specifically plot her way out of Yibun. But ultimately what the Mishnah comes, the Gemara comes to say, excuse me, is, we just don't believe that's like such a far flung conspiracy theory case. It's not a case that we would believe in or think that could actually happen. And we sort of, whenever we rule in these types of cases, we have to go by what most people are, what the most logical is. We can't make rulings based on sort of a really extraordinary far flung idea. With that, we finish the parakadronalach. I think it's a really powerful ending. Right. You know. Well, what I want to say is it's interesting because it's almost like here they could have been boundary pushing and they basically say like, no, no, no. This is like a boundary that's too crazy even for us. But also I feel like we've seen so many specific cases, details of cases right throughout this barrack. And, you know, and it start and it ends, you know, with a bang on a much more sweeping kind of, or the example gets a sweeping conclusion that I think, you know, is a kind of an object lesson to, to all of those cases, right? Like, you know, some we're still we, we still have to be within the realm of what makes sense for how people conduct themselves, and beyond that, you know, the Gemara says no, it goes too far. Um, I also always find this like the the discussion of Nidaram. I mean, I'll table it because I know we'll get there eventually, but I always find it very interesting. Okay, going on, moving on, we have a new parak. We are in the fourteenth parak on. You know, on the same daf, you'd uh, you'd bet one twelve. We have a mammoth mishnah here. We have a mammoth mishnah here because it is the entirety of the mishnah of this whole parak. Now we've seen this happen before, but I I always find it puzzling why it would happen in one mission, like in one chapter of one masechet, and not that the whole masechet is set up to have all of the mission at the beginning of the parak. But that's how this particular chapter is worked out. So what we're going to do now is read all of the Mishnah for the entire parak, and then as we go through the Gemara, we'll be referring back to this. We won't be going through that Gemara today, obviously. Okay. And we're still dealing with, you know, unusual cases, people who get married, Yibum, etc., where the 
the status of the people um, kind of adds a wrinkle to, to the basic, you know, the bottom line, simple case. So we've got somebody who I still, we need a, a better term here, Dana, for pikachat and pikach, right? Because the this idea that they're competent or halachically competent, you know, we don't want to say that they're like the regular people because I have, all of these people are regular people, at least certainly by our standards. But the the idea that there's something sharp to them, you know, or that they're particularly incisive, which is my understanding of pikeach, is again, it's it's swaying off the track. It really just means that they have the status of being halachically competent. I don't really have a better way to put it. So we have here a deaf mute who marries um, such a person, and again, man to deaf mute man with a halachically competent woman, or vice versa, a halachically competent man who marries a deaf mute woman. Um, if if the man in either of these scenarios wants to divorce his wife, he can divorce his wife. And if he wants to keep her as his wife, then he can keep her as his wife. Again, you know, this is mission territory. There's no discussion of the woman's interest here. Presumably she wants to stay married. It was in her best interest to do so. Um, okay. Now, the question is, how is it going to work? How can you end up, you know, with a divorce if the woman, if let's say, for example, if the man is the one who is halachically competent and the woman is the one who is deaf mute, and then how are we going to arrange for that divorce to take place? And the language here is that he does it with berimiza, with a hinting, with intimation of what's happening, right? So the same, he that's how he marries her to begin with. Right, it's not explicit speech because how is that going to help her? Right, to say, "Hare at mikudeshli," I'm marrying you, but she can't hear him. Then you know, then that then that doesn't work. There has to be communication in the phenomenon of marriage. So likewise, there has to be phenomenon in the community. There has to be communication in the phenomenon of divorce. And in this case, it's the it's the same idea. So with gestures and an indication, he will make that clear. What about two halakhically competent people who marry and then later she becomes deaf? They can get divorced or they can stay married. But if she, and this is again not the nicest uh, vocabulary here, but if she becomes, um, I would say, cognitively impaired is that a polite way to say this here dana yeah i i think that's a good translation okay right meaning so so that she loses her cognitive abilities then he can't divorce her meaning now we might think that that's a matter of compassion but it's because it won't work right there has to be um somebody who is competent in their in their cognition to be able to accept the bill of divorcement and so there's no way to divorce there is no way to divorce her and if he's the one who became a deaf mute, or he became, again, cognitively impaired after they had married, meaning two people, Pikach, Pikachat, get married, and then this happens to him, not to her, then he can never divorce her because he then is judged to not have the legal competence, that same halachic competence, to be able to issue the bill of divorce. And I would say it's one thing to say if he lost cognitive abilities but to say that if he's simply deaf in this day and age that sounds like you know 
why not? Right? We would say, of course, he's, he's cognitively ability, cognitively able to hand over a bill of divorcement, and um, I'm hoping that our guest for for the seum will talk about exactly this kind of case because this happens. It happens, and it's pretty tragic um, because again, <laughs> you have people who have intellectual capabilities, but because they simply, you know, do not fit the the standards of that time of what. Uh, whatever. I mean, I feel like everybody understands the problem here, um, but but it, it, in our modern world, it becomes really a, a messy, tragic situation. Okay, now we're moving on within the Mishnah. He asked this question, Rabbi Yochanan ben Nuri. He says, "How can it be? Why does it make sense that the woman who becomes a deaf mute, she can be divorced? He can divorce her." But if he becomes a deaf mute, he cannot divorce her. Meaning, why does it matter? You know, he doesn't he have to be, doesn't she have to be competent cognitively to be able to accept the get? So as long as he's competent cognitively to give it, what difference does it make? The fact that he's deaf mute, right? Now, this is a, a very important halachic principle, and it shows up all through all through Gittin, all through issues of divorce. This idea that uh, the way a man divorces is different from the way that a woman is divorced, because a woman can end up divorced either, you know, according to her interests, her will, or also against her will. There were decrees against that, but the original halacha is that she could be divorced against her will, and the man cannot divorce, cannot be the agent who does the divorcing against his will. It has to be in accord with his will. So we have two different standards by, you know, for the man who divorces and the woman who is divorced. Again, that man's status, status changed over time, but not in the time of the Mishnah. And now our Mishnah gets very, very interesting. He'id, and this is an interesting word, he'id, he gives testimony. Rabbi Yochanan ben Gudgada al Rabbi Yochanan ben Gudgada gives testimony about a female deaf mute whose father married her off when she was a katana, right? And so her marriage is valid, right? But she needs a bill of divorce when she gets when she grows up because she's no longer under her father's authority, right? And she still doesn't have that full uh, halachic competence because of the status of being a chereshet. But in any case. That's what she's like. She grows up. She wants to get divorced. That's what she needs. Amrulo avzo ba. And they said to him, they said to her, Yochanan ben Gudgada, that this woman has a similar status, meaning she she's like the person who was a pikachat and then later became a deaf mute. And so that again, she can she can go she can go free or whatever with a bill of divorcement. She can receive it. Now a very quick who's who, not a full one on Rabbi Yochanan ben Gudgada. He's a levy, and he actually was of an earlier generation. He even was able to serve in the Beit Hamikdash. So, you know, as our we talk about how Chazal themselves were not alive necessarily during the Temple, uh, this sage was. Um, and then, after the destruction of the Beit Hamikdash, he was involved in the yeshiva when it was in Yavne, and his name shows up, you know, at different various Mishnayot. But what's most important and most interesting, as far as we're concerned, is that he had children and grandchildren who were born mute. 
because there was some hereditary condition, obviously, right? Maybe that's you can they could trace it through the through the through the line of the family. And despite this impairment, they, you know, grew up to be great scholars, Torah scholars, and and they end up being um they played a strong role in the Tuma and Tara, the purity and impurity of what was decided in Jerusalem. But what I find interesting is that right, he's the one who gave testimony about this chereshet, meaning somebody who was a deaf mute because he knew well, right? He's got it in, he's got it as a, a hereditary issue, a genetic issue in his family. Okay. The mission goes on because as we discussed decided, as we've already discussed, it's a mammoth Mishnah. We're going to pick up the pace here. We have two deaf-mute brothers who married two deaf-mute sisters. It seems that whoever these two deaf-mute brothers marry, they can marry deaf-mute sisters or halakhically competent sisters or two sisters, one who's a deaf-mute and one who is halakhically competent. Let's switch it around um, for the the women to marry these men. Again, two sisters and two brothers. In all of these cases where you end up with at least one of the parties being a deaf mute, um, the conclusion is that they do not need not only do they not need, they are exempt from the need for chalitza and also for yibum. Now, if they were, we've seen this term before, if they were, not literally means, you know, non-Jews, but in this case, it means those who are not related to each other. We've seen this many prakim ago. Um, then they can get married, right? And then if they want to get divorced, they can get divorced. As a po- But this is still not an issue of Yibum and Chalitza. Yibum and Chalitza is what is what is discussed here as being, you know, off the table. So now you've got two brothers. One is deaf mute. One is halachically competent. They married two sisters who are both halachically competent. So in this case, right, you've got, again, let's just lay it, let's lay it out. There's a brother who's deaf mute. There's a brother who is halakhically competent. The two sisters are halakhically competent. They're married to these two brothers. The deaf mute dies. His wife is a pikachat. So theoretically, she should get yibum from the brother, who is also a pikach, right? But the brother is married to her sister. So now she's, you know, she doesn't need yibum, she doesn't need chalitza because it's a case of Asha, of achot isha. Meit pikech, bal ha-pikachat. What about the reverse case? What happens if the pikech who's married to the pikachat dies? Maya secheresh bal pikachat. What does the cheresh have to do? Does he have to do yibum or chalitza with that widow? Motzi ishto beget ve'eshet achiv asurali olam. So the position here is that he has to divorce his wife Um because the wife's sister right, um, ended up being a case of a of a yibum situation, but because of and the yibum situation ends up being of a higher halachic status because it's doraita as compared to his marriage, which is rabbinic. So they get divorced, but then it's a case of eshet ach, right, and he can't ever do yibum or chalitza with her. 
Okay, we're still going here. Snei achin pikhin isuin l'shei achayot, achat chereshet v'chat pikachat, two halach of incompetent brothers married, two sisters, one who is deaf mute, one who is halach of incompetent, made pikach bal chereshet, maya se pikach bal pikachat. So what happens if the halachically competent brother die, or the one who's married to the deaf mute dies? Now what has to happen? So it's the same case fundamentally as we saw above that they separate because of the law of achot isha. This riot situation made pikeach bal The flip side, maya pikeach bal What that? What does he have to do then? Motzi et ishto baget vet achiv so in this case, he says, you know what? He gives his wife a bill of divorcement, and the case of Eshrachiv gets Chalitza, meaning not Yibum, that would you know be a risky violation. But just to be careful, because they're both Pikhim, they do Chalitza. Fine. Next. We have two brothers, one who is um, a deaf mute, one who is halachically competent, they're married to two sisters. And likewise, this is a combination of one who is deaf mute and one who is halakhically competent. Again, this is by just the standard of the way halakha talks about this. And I want to note, like it seems that there's many people who seem to have been deaf mutes. And the question is, is that real is that realistic? You know, this really was a, a strong phenomenon in this ancient world, or is it simply the math of it? And I don't have a good answer for that. But we did talk about it, Yardina, and you're suggesting that there could have been many more because nowadays we have, you know, surgery and hearing aids and all kinds of things that would prevent us even from knowing how many people might have originally had this status were there not treatments today. So maybe. So what happens? The the man who is a deaf mute and married to a deaf mute woman dies. So should there be a case of Yibum from the Pikeach who's married to the to the woman who's allegedly competent? Should he do Yibum with the Chereshet? And the answer is no. She goes free because she's released from anything, from everything because of Achot Isha. What about the reverse case? If the Pikeach dies, does there have to be a case of Yibum from the deaf mute man with a Pikachat woman? Motsi et Ishto Baget, he sends his wife forth with a divorce, the Eshet Achiv Asuralulam, and he can't marry his brother's widow. Um, again, this is the issue of the, the Torah prohibition as compared to the rabbinic um, requirement. The Torah, Torah prohibition wins. So now we've got two brothers. One is definitely one is halachically competent, and they married two um, halachically competent women who are not related to each other. So now what's supposed to happen again with this yibum? The answer is well, either you could do chalitza or you could do yibum. Like it's not a, because they're not related. There's the impediment there is not a problem. Mate pikach, and let's flip the flip the case on its head. Mate pikach bal pikachat. bal pikachat. What does the cheresh do? Um, he is the avam. I mean, the theoretically avam. Kones ve'enomot zilolam, 
and he can marry her. He he's supposed to marry her according to this, and he can never divorce her because the moment the yibum has taken place, it becomes a marriage, and because he's a deaf mute, he can't divorce her. As we've already said, he can't send her out. Um, okay, second to last here. Shnei achin, pikchin, nusuin l'shnei nachriot, achad pikachad v'achad chereshet. So we have two halachically competent brothers, and they marry two women who are not related to each other. One of whom is a pikachad, and one of whom is a chereshet, one of whom is halachically competent, one of whom is a deaf mute. Made pikach bal chereshet. So the deaf mute's husband dies. Mayas a pikach bal pikacha. What is the other guy supposed to do, the one who's married to the halachically competent woman? Kones, he marries the deaf mute and if he wants to divorce her he can divorce her meaning that's part of what he's allowed to do she the chereshet can get divorced made pikach bal pikachat what if the other guy died right again flipping the case on its head maya said pikach bal chereshet what's the husband of the chereshet supposed to do oh he can either do chalitza or he can actually you know have a yibum with the pikachat who's who's now the widow and finally, we're at the end of this very long Mishnah. Again, it's all of the Mishnah for the whole parak, so it's not so surprising that it's so long, but it makes a long podcast. Sorry. So we have two brothers, one who is deaf, mute, one of whom is halakhically competent. They marry two women who are not related to each other. So again, one is deaf, mute, and one is um, halakhically competent, as we're saying. So the husband, the deaf mute husband is dies. He is the husband of the deaf mute woman. What's the other guy supposed to do? Kones, he can marry the chereshet. If they want, he wants to get divorced, they can get divorced. What if that's the guy who died? What's the deaf mute man who's supposed to, who's, you know, Theoretically, he's now the Avam, and he's married to the Chereshet. What's he supposed to do? Kones He marries the widow who's the Pikachat, and they can never get divorced because um, he does not have that legal capacity, the halachic capacity, to um, to divorce anybody, um, at least according to the Mishnah, the level of the Mishnah. Um, I want to just comment on the fact that we've read this very, very long Mishnah all in one go, and why we do this, right? Why we care so much about you know, touching these Mishnayot when theoretically, you know, we could, the same way we skip some of the Gemara, we could skip some of the Mishnayot. Look, we would love to be able to do all of the Gemara in the interest of time. We don't. and uh, We can't discuss everything, you know, every day. But also, I would say that because the Mishnah becomes the foundation and the springboard for the Gemara discussion, we feel that if we at least cover the Mishnah, then we're giving the baseline, you know, for all the future discussion. Um, in this case, I think it's a very clear, you know, take your chart, line it up, see how they go through, you know, every just about every case that they could that they could to figure out um, how things are gonna how things are gonna manifest in the event of Yibum. And I think that, you know, the value here of course is not leaving it to the let's say the Dayanim, the judges in whatever generation to have to figure it out based on just a few streamlined rules or regulations. Here the Mishnah really delves into the cases and so we have a tremendous amount of case law um, basically to be able to establish, you know, what are the parameters of all of these different kinds of marriages, all of these different kinds of cases of Yibum in the event that there'd be a need for Yibum? 
Um, and I'm sure there were cases that needed to be extrapolated from these, but in terms of precision, uh, the Mishnah really gives it to us. Well, that's our DAF discussion for the day. Thank you for joining us. Rankets Review is where you get your podcast. Come talk to us on our Facebook page and tell us what you think of this stuff. Thank you to Reverend Michelle Farber for hosting us on the Hudrin website. And until tomorrow, go and learn.